Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 13. 1 through 13, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. So we've been looking at this book uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We come to this particular section of text, and Paul has, in chapter 2, been defending his apostleship. And he has shared with them in chapter 1 his heart for them, his thankfulness to the Lord. Chapter 2, he's defended his apostleship and his longing to see them, his love for them. And then in chapter 3, he shares his heart, his concern for their faith and what happened that brought him joy. Verse 1 of chapter 3, First Thessalonians, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you, are always, you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we do also for you. That he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word. And Father, we give you thanks that it speaks clearly to us of the concern that we ought to have for one another, of the joy, the things, O God, that bring joy to your heart as well. And we pray, O Father, that you would illumine our minds and grant to us understanding by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One question that challenges many of us is the question of what is it that we care about the most? What is it that we truly care about the most? 
What is it that we would risk our lives for? NBC Chicago reports that in January 2014, a 26-year-old man died after he fell into the frigid waters of the Chicago River. Shortly after midnight, the article read, Ken, a visitor from St. Paul, Minnesota, and two of his friends were taking photos of the river when he dropped his cell phone into the ice below. He climbed over a railing onto the ice but fell into the water. One of his friends, Lauren, then dropped down onto the ice to rescue him, but she also slipped into the river. When she yelled for help, another friend also stepped onto the ice and fell into the water, police said. Ken was later pronounced dead at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Lauren, who had been missing since early Monday morning, was pulled from the water two days later and pronounced dead. The third friend, 23-year-old, was hospitalized and released, and he wrote on his Facebook account, Life's too short. I hope no one would ever have to go through something so unfortunate such as what happened to us. The day after the tragedy, the NBC Chicago was interviewing people about the tragedy. And a young woman said, I guess I can understand the impulse. Your cell phone is sort of a part of you, and we we're kind of tied to it. But it's only a cell phone. To risk your life is incredible. Unquote. What is it that you value the most? What is it that you would risk your life for? And what is most important to you? This is a season for graduations. Some of you have attended graduations, and we are near graduation time. People who, are, who have or are going to be walking down in celebration of their high school graduation or their college graduation. My niece is graduating next week. I'll be seeing her in her commencement ceremonies. Van Morris writes an article related to, entitled, Goals of Generation Next. And he writes, quote, what is essential in the mind of the typical college freshman? An extensive survey conducted by the Higher Education Research Institute found that 85.8% say it is getting rich. Getting rich. That's what's most essential in the minds of typical college freshmen. It's validated further by a research that was collected by the Pew Research for the McNeil Lear Productions Generation Next Project that surveyed 18 to 25-year-olds of their top life goal. Top life goal. Number one, 81% said to be rich. Little over half said to be famous. And only one in 10 said to be more spiritual. So it's no wonder then if students who are 18 to 25-year-olds don't have as their life goal, don't have as their top life goal to be godly, for them not to make spiritual things their highest priority. And it makes me wonder, too, how many parents instill in their children values that perhaps are well-meaning but misplaced because they're not biblical, saying to them, I just want you to have enough money. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to have a good job. Certainly, I can't imagine Jesus saying that to his disciples, that that is what he wants for his disciples. Certainly, Jesus would rather be saying something like, the most important thing in all the world is for you 
to be saved. It said in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And if they are saved, then the greatest desire for someone who is saved is to be sanctified, to be one who grows in godliness. That's the greatest desire. And is that the desire that we pass on to those who are graduates? Is that the desire that we pass on to our children or others that we know, that our greatest desire is that they come to know Christ or that they will grow in Christ-likeness? For the will of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, the next chapter is in verse 3, your sanctification. That means to be separate, to be set apart. So what is it that you value the most? Do you value what God values? That of being saved if you don't know Him, or being sanctified if you do know Him, that you would grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 3, Paul, we see the heart of Paul as it is, it is as laid out in what he writes, the heart of one who genuinely cares, deeply cares about what is important to God, and that is the spiritual life of others. He's not inquiring about how the church is doing in terms of its program. He isn't asking them, do you have enough donkey stalls? He's not asking them, how is the offering? He is not asking them about how many programs, how many people that they have, how many people that have been baptized in the past year. No. He is deeply concerned about their spiritual condition, their spiritual life, whether or not temptation has taken and drawn them away. And he wants them not to be discouraged because of the affliction that he and his friends have faced. Because you see, this was a fledgling church. The Thessalonian church was a new church. He had only been ministering there for a few months when he had to leave because the Jews had driven him out. And even after he fled to Berea, the Jews came down and caused him to have to leave there as well. So it's no wonder that if someone came to plant a church and was only there for three months, they would be very concerned. Was that church still around? Were they standing firm in the things that he had taught them, or did they capitulate to the temptation of saying, goodness, our leader, the Apostle Paul, is no longer here, and we might as well fold. So he expresses his concern over their faith in verses 1 through 5. And he begins by saying in verse 1, when we could endure it no longer, the text says, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And as you know, as I shared, Paul had to leave Thessalonica because of persecution. He had difficulties. There were difficulties not only from the outside, but there were some, as you know, that had come into the church and had begun to posit ideas about him, gossip or whatever it may be, that were ungodly. The Bible tells us that he waited so long as he could when he simply couldn't endure, verse 1. He couldn't endure not knowing how they were doing. And so he sent young Timothy, young Timothy who had only come to faith in Christ for a year before he was asked by Paul and Silas to come along with them as a missionary, a young Christian as he was, and he caused, so I sent Timothy to see how they were doing and to bring them encouragement because he just had a burning desire to know how 
was the church at Thessalonica doing and he couldn't endure it any longer, just the same way that somebody might not be able to endure when there's a tragedy, someone in the hospital or perhaps a young mother who's expecting and the person who is looking forward to the news from the doctor is sitting outside in the waiting room, anxious and in anticipation of not knowing what is happening. So he sends Timothy. He sends Timothy to find out how they were doing. And he wanted them to know that his afflictions, the persecution that they were facing, were all the things that Paul had already told them would happen so that their faith might not be shaken, so their faith might not be discouraged because they're facing these difficult things. And this is what the Paul, Apostle Paul lays out for us as we see in these very first verses. You see the heart of a genuine servant of the Lord. You see the heart of a person who is a true pastor, a person who is a missionary, a heart that we are to emulate as well. He is not serving there out of obligation. He didn't go plant the church because he was being paid for it, because it was his job. He didn't go and start the church at Thessalonica because, well, he was happened to be over that area or responsibility or simply out of duty. We see here in this first passage, in these first number of verses, his heart, his love, a genuine love, a genuine concern for the people of God. And as we saw last week, Sunday, his love for the people of God wasn't simply because or wasn't just because they treated him nicely. It wasn't because they had responded so positively in chapter 1. In fact, his love for the church of God was irrespective of all of those things. You recall last week we looked at Galatians 1, 6, and 7 and Philippians 1, 7, and 8 at the heart of the Apostle Paul, how he expressed his love for those churches. Galatia was a church that had been duped by false teachers who had come in, and he said to them, how quickly you've departed. How could you do that? What in the world has happened? And in Philippians 1, 7, and 8, he shares his love for the church, but even more so, the church that perhaps was the most difficult was the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church had plenty of problems. It was by far, by far laden with factions and lawsuits and immorality in the church that they were proud of, and they were people who were flaunting their spiritual gifts. They were showboating. They were selfish when it came to the Lord's table. And there were people, and he wrote 2 Corinthians because people had come into the church and began to question his apostolic authority to say that he wasn't who he really said he was, and that, is, that letter is an entire defense of his ministry. But even then, to the Corinthian church, he says in 2 Corinthians 2.4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. To a church that had left him behind, who hadn't fulfilled their obligations, who hadn't trusted in his teaching. And later on, we see that Paul not only has a desirous love, he has a genuine love for the people of God, but also his burden for the church in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Apart from such external things, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches, for all the churches. 
It's not a nine-to-five job that he had, and his concern for the Thessalonians wasn't simply so that, well, he could look good because he's planted another church. His concern for all of the churches is genuine. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-nine, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? That is the heart of the Apostle Paul. He loved the church. He loved the people of God. And his heart went out when someone hurt. He hurt as well. When somebody was rejoicing and had good times, he celebrated with them as well. There were good times. There were bad times. His concern was for the well-being, the spiritual welfare of God's people. Of God's people. Why? For fear, verse Thessalonians says, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. His genuine concern was that they not be drawn away and decide to give up. They not be led astray. For the God of this world, as he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see in the light of the gospel the glory of Christ. If there were there, if there were some who did not yet believe Satan would blind them. But even for those who are believing, he states in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. His concern was that the tempter might lead them astray. And he does that by either blinding the minds of those who don't believe or leading astray in the minds of those who do His concern for the spiritual well-being of the church shows his genuineness as an apostle, shows his genuineness that they desired to see and that would encourage them to know that this apostle genuinely and deeply loved the church. That's his greatest desire, his concern for their spiritual well-being. And the question again remains for us, what is our greatest desire What do we want most? What is our greatest priority? Is our greatest desire for the spiritual well-being of those who don't know Christ, whom we know, that they be saved? Or those that we do know, that they grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus? Is our greatest desire for our children, our family, our wives to be people who will be more like the Lord Jesus? Or is it something else? Are we deeply concerned for their spiritual well-being. Well, he sends Timothy away to find out. And Timothy returns. He returns. And there is tremendous gratitude and joy, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you for this reason, brethren. In all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Timothy's report, you see, verse 6, was so very positive. He brought us good news. That's the word euangelion, which we get the word evangelism. Good news. That's why they call it the good news. Have you heard the good news? Have you heard the gospel? In every other case in the New Testament, this word is used of sharing the gospel, but it is such good news of their faith that Paul uses it here in this unique circumstance to share with us, his readers, that the news was tremendously good of their faith and of their love, that they were strong 
and have grown in the Lord. And that brought tremendous joy, brought tremendous joy. It is tremendously rewarding to see and hear how people whom you've invested your life in as a Christian, whom perhaps you've discipled or perhaps you've taught in a Sunday school class or perhaps you have given your time for so that they might grow, that they are now reinvesting themselves in the lives of others. It's an encouragement when I think back. I remember when I was in seminary some 20 plus years ago when I was doing youth ministry. The first Sunday school class I taught had something like 12 girls and one guy. It's a bit awkward. There was another guy, but he didn't come very regularly. But the one guy who came came because, I don't know if he came because of the girls. I think one of the girls invited him. And I'm sure that he didn't have a hard time coming. He came to know the Lord, though, in that group, tall and skinny guy. I remember him. His name was Paul. His name was Paul. Well, he was sort of a quiet fella, and he didn't say much during Sunday school and during youth group meetings, I remember. But a number of years later, after I'd finished, I went back to seminary to study again. And when I went back to seminary, I found out that at the school that I enrolled in, Paul had enrolled as a first-year student. I finished early, and he continued on in his studies. And it was such an encouragement to hear how he had gone into the ministry, how he was a very artistic individual, how he had gone to Tibet as a missionary. And because they didn't have a written language, he would use his art skills and make these wonderful tapestries with pictures of the progress of creation and how he would use that as a means to share the gospel. It is tremendously rewarding to see how people you've invested your life in, how they are continuing to walk with God and reinvest their lives in others. Tremendous joy that there is. And tremendous joy when people that you have given so much to carry on the faith that 2 Corinthians 5.15 might come to fruition for them, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. That they might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who rose again on their behalf. The Thessalonians, they were true to the faith, and that really excited the Apostle Paul. Verse 8, he says, for now we really live. Now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. This is one who serves the Lord and brings great thrill, great thrill. They, that to say that, to say that it encourages him to continue on even more, to find a great desire to really live. It's interesting what people find that really brings a thrill to their life. Dean Potter, not long ago, I'm sad to say, he was a well-known extreme sports athlete. He died recently while base jumping at Yosemite. Base jumping is a it's a very dangerous sport. It is, uh, it's like uh, skydiving, except you're jumping from a fixed point. Base jumpers will jump off of skyscrapers and of bridges. They'll base jump off of high mountains and such and such. And his death brought back to the forefront the question, the question of why these athletes which take such high risks. And you have all sorts of extreme sports athletes, 
Frank Farley, who's a Temple University psychologist, says, they don't have a death wish. They have a life wish. They don't want to die, and they don't expect to die. Farley goes on to say, this is what being alive is for them. They don't want to sit at a desk all day. So rather than call the things these athletes do death-defying stunts, they should call them life-striving events. But it is amazing that some people will find fulfillment in life by risking their life, especially when God holds out eternal life and the things that will thrill when we invest our lives in the things of God. It's amazing, isn't it, to find that some people find that rush of adrenaline from living on the edge, living from thrill to thrill in something other than what will invigorate a soul. And that is to see people come to Christ and see people grow and see people thrive. The Apostle Paul says this is what makes him really, really brings a thrill to his life. Now we really live. If you stand firm, if you stand firm, that's a military term that Paul writes there, one of no retreat for a military soldier who holds the line, who holds the line against the enemy. And there's tremendous thankfulness. He planted a church merely months old. He had to leave, and he finds out not only have they stood firm, but their, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfast of hope brought their testimony throughout all of Macedonia. Just as the Apostle Paul Apostle John wrote in 3 John 1.4, I have no greater joy, no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. If you want to have tremendous joy, if you want to have tremendous joy, then invest your lives in things that will help others walk in the truth. Invest your lives in things that will bear fruit for eternity, not things that will risk your own life, and perhaps cause you to draw your life short. Every ministry matters. Every ministry matters if we see it in the light of bringing God glory for the edification of His people, whether it's working in the nursery or that so that mothers can come and listen to the Word of God or the times that we have with fellowship and refreshments downstairs so that fellowship and encouragement can happen. Every part of the body and the ministry is important to the building up of the body of Christ. And every individual has gifts that they can use. And Paul was so very excited by the fruit that God bore in the lives of the Thessalonian church. For he says in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? And he says in verse 10, night and day we keep praying most earnestly we might see you face to face and complete what is lacking in your faith. You can just feel the joy that exudes from this passage, the joy of the heart of the Apostle Paul to hear the good news from young Timothy who came back to bring that good news of how they were doing. Because why? He wanted what God wanted. He wanted what God wanted that they wouldn't be swayed by temptation, that they would stand firm, and that he would continue to have the opportunity to complete what is lacking in their faith. In other words, they weren't perfect yet. 
they weren't glorified yet, and he wanted to have that opportunity to continue to teach them the way of God so that they might even be more like the Lord Jesus. He wanted them to grow even more. So the question is again, what is your greatest desire? What is your greatest concern for your family? More than anything else in the world, more than a good job, more than a good education, more than money, more than a nice family, is it that they would be more spiritually mature, that they would know the Word of God even more, that they would be more godly people, and that they would reinvest their lives in someone else because that will bring you tremendous joy. That was the Apostle Paul's desire. His greatest desire for them, his concern for them, when he couldn't endure it no longer, he sent Timothy. That desire pleases the Lord. And that's the desire that we ought to emulate as well. We need to have that concern for the spiritual lives of others. And after he finds out the good news, he gives a prayer, a benediction in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. His prayer at the end here encapsulates his fellowship with them, their relationship with others, and their relationship with God. With the exception of the Lord Jesus, you know, the Apostle Paul, no one else eclipses the words in the New Testament that has been written about him than the Apostle Paul or that he penned himself. And the majority of prayers that are recorded in the New Testament are from the Apostle Paul. It's always interesting to see the the things that Paul prays about because they're so unlike the things that we often pray for. Oftentimes we pray for things that, well are small. But do we pray like the Apostle Paul prays? Do we pray continually like he prays? Charles Spurgeon writes, I take it that as a minister, he is always praying. He is not always in the act of prayer, but he lives in the spirit of it. If you are a genuine minister of God, you will stand as a priest before the Lord, spiritually wearing the ephod and the breastplate whereon you bear the names of your children, pleading for them within the veil, unquote. Paul prays for them, and I'm sure that as he says in chapter 1, he gives thanks every time he thinks of them because he loves the church. He prays, first of all, that they might be reunited, that he might fellowship with them, verse 11. That was his desire. His desire was to be with the people. He wasn't some hired hand who was only there nine to five. He wasn't there just because it was his job. He longed to be there with them. His longing was to see them again, and he prayed that God might permit that, and he wanted to fellowship with them again. Why? So that he might encourage their faith, as he says, that he might complete what is lacking in their faith. Secondly, he prays that they would have great love, great love. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. You see, one of the keys to effective ministry, whether you're, you're, you're teaching a Sunday school class, whether you're leading a small group, 
Whether you're in a fellowship, whether you're in a position of spiritual oversight or leadership, one of the keys to effective leadership is do you love the people? Is to love the people that you lead. Because your level of sacrifice will only be as great as your love for those that you serve. And we're so prone to love ourselves more than we love others. And yet when we think about that, that our love and our proportion of sacrifice for those that we love are directly related, we think of God's love. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we realize the greatness of God's love, the greatness of God's love because we see the greatness of his sacrifice. And in 1 John 3.16, by we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren, to lay down our lives for the brethren. Are we willing to do that which shows great love? You know, we just heard from Nate Bean about the opportunity to travel to the prisons in Malawi, there are many other countries in Africa which are climate-wise, much more difficult or have been ravaged by war or are more fraught with disease or perhaps have terrorists or other dangerous situations. But even then, some might say, go that far so that I can visit my brothers in prison, so that I can help my brothers and sisters to minister to those who are incarcerated. That's asking too much of me. I'd never be able to do that. But are we able to say that? In light of 1 John 3.16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You can only do so if you have a love for your brothers and your sisters in Christ, to see them as God sees them, as his children, as your own people, your family. He says, it's not just for one another not just love those who are Christians in your church, not just love those who are a part of your little small group, not just love those who are like you, but it says love for all people, all people. Doesn't matter what their socioeconomic background is, doesn't matter what their ethnicity is, doesn't matter where they work or what their family is like, I am called and you are called to love people. We don't say, well, We love your neighbor as yourself, and my neighbor is those that look like me, act like me, have the same background as me, or people that like me. Those are my neighbors. That's what the Pharisees would say, love your neighbor who is your fellow Jew. No, we are to love everyone, to love everyone. And a part of showing them great love is to speak truth to them to speak truth to them, to share with them the truth. If somebody doesn't know the Lord, the way to love them is to share the most important thing to you, the desire of God that they might come to know the Savior. Great love for your brother or your sister in Christ is to help them grow and be more like Christ, to speak truth to them. And Paul prays for them that their love might abound for one another and for all people, just as his own heart loved the church. Do you love God's people? Do you love the church? Do you love the people that are sitting in front of you? Do you love people that you don't know? That's Paul's prayer for them. 
And thirdly, his prayer for them, not only that he might be able to see them, that they might grow in love, but lastly, that they might be holy, their fellowship with God, holiness, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul's prayer looks forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. He looks forward to when Jesus will come. And his desire for them is that they would be pure and practically holy before he comes. Only those, you see, who are not living in a morass of sin look forward to Christ because, you see, when the light comes, sin desires to hide. There are those who live in sin and who are disobedient, who aren't looking forward to Jesus. And Paul wants them to be holy, looking forward to Christ's coming. He doesn't want them to be like rowdy children who don't want their parents to come because they'll be in trouble. Those who are living pure lives before God look forward to Christ's coming. And they're blameless. That's what holiness means, to be separated from sin. And notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say in his prayer that he prays that they would be happy. He doesn't pray that God would make them happy. He doesn't say to them, you know, the thing I want for you the most is for you to be happy. The authors of Boundaries in Marriage write, people who, are always, who always want to be happy and pursue it above all else are some of the most miserable people in the world. Why? Because their eyes are so often fixed upon themselves, so often fixed upon themselves when the Scriptures tell us very plainly, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finish of our faith. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are here on the earth. Consider others as more important than yourselves, Philippians 2. No, Paul wants them to be holy, and through holiness we have joy. That may mean they might suffer. That may mean they might have difficulties in life. That may mean there might be unpleasant circumstances that might make them temporarily unhappy, but through it, God purifies us and makes us more holy. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us it is God who saved us and chose us to live a happy life? No, a holy life. 1 Thessalonians 4.7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to lead a holy life. He calls us to be separated from sin, to be holy people, and Paul prays that they would be blameless, they would be holy. So here in this chapter, Paul unveils his heart, his genuine heart of one who genuinely cares for the people that he serves. He cares so much for their spiritual well-being that he sends Timothy, that he might be left alone for a while, but Timothy comes back with this wonderful report and he gives thanks and he gives thanks to God that they are standing firm because of his concern. And he prays for them. He prays that they might see him again. He prays that they might have a love for all people. And he prays that they might be holy. The question again for us is, what do we really care about that is most important for others? Do we care most that they be happy? Or do we care most that they be holy, that they be living according to what God's Word says? Do we care most about their spiritual well-being? Do we care most that they would walk with God? And if they don't know God, do we care most that they would be saved? 
What would someone say if they looked at your family from the outside? Would they look at your family and say, this family, their priorities, the way that they line up their time, the way that they line up what they decide to do, the way that they set aside time for me, is honoring, is God-centered, prioritizes the sanctification of their family, that they might be more and more godly as a family? Or do they say, well, I don't know what their priorities are, but it surely is not God. Are they full of love for people, holy and blameless? If you are, then you'll look forward to Jesus' coming. You'll look forward to Jesus' coming because those who live holy lives have a desire to see the Master and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Father, for the heart of the Apostle Paul. His great desire, Father, for people to remain steadfast and strong. His concern for their spiritual well-being. And we pray, O oh Father, as we look around us, we see our family and our friends. God, I pray that that might be our desire as well, that we might care deeply about how they are doing in their walk with you, that they might be right, holy and blameless as children of God. In Jesus' name, amen.